This is podcast number 238, entitled Motivate. And you've just heard the cover of Whenever You Walk in the Room, which was by Jackie DeShannon, and it's covered here by Anjeta Felskog, and that is the Swedish singer Anjeta, Abba's great and signal phenomenon. And um, the... Um, the uh, rendition here underscores the power of the motivating force of romantic love whenever you walk in the room. Now, I want to talk about this in um, uh, empirical and also transcendent terms at the same time. The absolutely um, motivating and uh, astoundingly propulsive power of romantic love. It's a theme I've talked about before, but I don't seem to be getting my message across as it relates to the gospel. Um, I've gotten a resistance on this from time immemorial. I remember at Grace Church in Bible studies on Monday nights, we'd have big crowds, and it was I was always taken up on this point. People would not, they would not accept that uh, that romantic love was a window into the divine love. They wanted to generally start with assertions about the divine love, and then kind of um, talk about romantic love as a metaphor for the divine love, and then they would get caught up in an experience, because these were all young people. They were all young newcomers to New York, all of them, and they would then be caught up by a um, romantic experience in their own lives, and they'd either come crashing down from some kind of Christian, rational, Empyrean height, and and fall into terrible, um, real... um, uh, uh, destructive and exhausting and draining sin, you might call it, which would ultimately destroy their entire Christian confession. Or, because we loved them and we never stopped, I always expected it would happen, they'd come back eventually a little sadder but wiser, because the um, love of God, that love with which we are loved, we love because he first loved us, which I absolutely and totally believe, is made plain and manifest in the psychosexual romantic um, male-female erotic dimension. That's where it is most uh, known, because that's the way we're constructed. We're simply built in such a way that if we want to understand the kind of love that has such a claim on us that we will do absolutely anything to get it or hold on to it, to achieve it or find it or discover it or um, fulfill it, this drive is the core drive in human existence. It is a drive really for fusion and connection. It is not strictly a physical thing, although it is highly manifest. God in man made manifest. Uh, It is manifest in the psychosexual, but it is primarily an, an enormous and universal urge for fusion with another being, another human being, fusion with another identity. And that uh, is driving, and that is uh, absolutely fundamental. And if you don't see that, you'll be caught. It's not that I'm trying to sort of debase the currency of the divine transaction of love on Calvary. I believe it with all my heart, and I'll get back to it in a minute. But I'm trying to, to earth it in such a way that you will not surprise yourself and lose your faith. Let me say that one more time. Lose your faith. There are many, many, many people in the Christian world, in the believing world, 
who trip over this great scandalon, this great rock of offense, which is romantic slash erotic love. They, they don't, they're not prepared to acknowledge its superior force and simply power in human relationships. And they then are caught short when later in life or at some point in life, they are suddenly in touch with this massive and overwhelming and undeniable desire for fusion, and uh, it, it erases every other commitment. It runs roughshod over every other promise they've ever made, and they don't understand why, and the whole world says, well, we wouldn't expect this of her. We would never expect her to do this for this very sophisticated, very demanding, very boundary-oriented, very, uh, you know, tell-you-where-to-get-off kind of uh, c career woman, for her to suddenly drop everything and go after this incredibly disgusting person as we see it, this young man or this younger man or this person who is completely, quote, unsuitable, end of quote, but that's not how she sees it. And you'll ask her, well, how, how could you do this? How could you leave this, that, and the other person, this, that, and the other situation, this, that, and the other promise, this, that, of the other commitment, this, that, of the other principle that you used to speak so highly of in your feminism or what your ideological position, whatever it was? And she will say, well, you know, I didn't really realize it myself. I, I didn't know myself. And suddenly this came into my life. He came into my life or she came into my life. And it just sort of, what is the word? All bets are off. It, it, it made everything else seem hollow. And I went for it. Now, you know, I talk, you think I'm just telling you this as some kind of a, uh, I'm trying to help you. I'm trying to help you understand yourself. Because if, if you don't understand this, something will happen at some point that will call into question everything ideologically and theologically that you've proven before. This is the core problem with Karl Barth. Now, the problem with Karl Barth is not Charlotte von Kirschbaum and all the different things that are, that are currently being read about him. And Mary and I and our children are right in that because we, we know the person who knows the most about Karl Barth personally in the world. We know very intimately the scholar who knows the most there is to know about Karl Barth in the world, bar none, and that's a generally recognized fact. Now, I, it's not the Charlotte von Kirschbaum or other aspects of his personality. It's his theology. His theology put, put the entire weight on the top going down. It put the entire weight on the theological affirmation that was supposed to blast you into some kind of acquiescence and uh, sort of nullify your experience as ever against a maxim or the Word of God, capital W. And it's simply not the case. It's not true. And there was one little tiny German theologian back in the 20s whose name I forget. He was a very courageous man. Who young guy, but well, probably forty. But he he actually was the only person who could refute, who would refute Bart, because Bart was so powerful and politically so um, and such clout that you simply couldn't possibly go against him. You would lose. You would never get a chair, a teaching chair at a German university or German speaking university ever, ever, ever. So this one man took his career in his hands, and he obviously lost, humanly speaking. And he said, "I'm sorry, Bart. We live here, Herr Bart." We, we live here, we live here, we live here. We don't live there in some never-never land of, uh, of axiom, axiomatic um, axiom land. We, we, live, we live here, and you're not taking us into account. And so a theology that doesn't take the, um, the, uh, the uh, horizontal desire to fuse, which is a religious... Uh, action. It's a religious motivation. It's to, it's to move outside yourself. It's to transcend your ego in union with another ego. 
which actually creates something very close to a union with God because it's the part of you, not really the ego, it's the part of you which is universal. It's not Paul Zoll. It's that part of Paul Zoll which is really aligned with God, which is in some sense divine. The, the hand that made us is divine. You know, it's Haydn. It's there. And so we... um. We, we, that part of us, that eternal part of us is desperate to fuse and that fusion desire will cause us to uh, absolutely put on the shelf almost any other possible motivation. That is the key motivation, the motion, motivation of altruism, which is caused the self-denying ordinance, to use a historical phrase from English history, self-denying ordinance, which allows you to be one with another and really in union together with God. And that is what is uh, the dominant human drive from birth to death and it's um, it absolutely cannot be gainsaid and it cannot be denied and it causes every strange action that your mother or father or grandfather or grandmother or your husband or wife or your child even ever undertook in their entire lives every weird strange action they ever took had something to do with this need to fuse now I want to just um say that in doing so, we are in touch with the authentic experience of laying down our own life for another. Um, blessed are those, what is it, on all the British memorials uh, to World War I veterans in every uh, Middlesex village and farm in England, uh, Middlesex village and town, um, greater love hath no man than to give his life, to lay down his life for another. Well, that's the origin of all the, uh, that is the, 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 the origin of self-giving is belovedness. The origin of self-giving, of self-denying and then self-giving altruistically without any reference to your own particular, quote, good or advantage. That is in the prior belovedness. And that's what people who are in love can do. You know, I'm as corny as Kansas in August, high as a kite on the 4th of July. If you'll excuse an expression I use, I'm in love with a wonderful guy. And then the nurse character from Arkansas who's fallen in love with a French planter in the Polynesia during World War II says four times times, uh, exultingly, exuberantly, with a total one monomania, I'm in love, I'm in love, I'm in love, I'm in love, I'm in love with a wonderful guy. And that's a male um, and a female uh, feeling. And that is where the ability to love um, um, is, uh, what is it, est-ce que, parce que tu m'aimes, is it because perhaps you love me, <laughs> that is the source of all action. That's why South Pacific is so romantic. It's so deeply romantic, which, which transcends the socially progressive message of the young uh, uh, captain who gets into trouble and is actually killed, um, having crossed the color line to fall in love with the beautiful girl on the island of Bali High. Well, I want to just leave that with you because it is the uh, origin of all altruism, is belovedness, and the best way we can know it now is romantic belovedness. And yet, there is this extraordinary fact that when you are loved that way, you can do a lot of things. And I just want to close by, I mean, I couldn't have done anything I did in the ministry if I hadn't been secure with, uh, on Mary's love. I mean, there... I mean, my love is, is um, a little bit of Petula Clark. I mean, it goes up and down. I'm just an up and down sort of person. Mary's love is absolutely and totally securing. And Mrs. Zoll, and this love is what allows a person to do anything good. And when one doesn't have that love or when one is uncertain about love uh, or one is caught or conflicted about love, one's ability to do anything good goes down. And I just want to say one thing about Judge Roy Moore. Uh, this is all playing out now and um, you, you know, it, it, the whole thing is uh, very, very uh, troubling. Uh, but one thing I would say about Judge Moore 
and I'm not um, saying something to defend whatever he may have actually, uh, however he may have acquitted himself at a much earlier phase in his life, and there's a heck of a lot to be said about that, uh, but I don't want to take sides remotely on that. I do want to say that there's something about more when you see him speak, and I... He was a factor in our lives in Birmingham, although I never met him personally. He was a factor when we, I was dean at the Advent in Birmingham. There's something about Roy Moore that is sort of, it's like he doesn't really, something, he comes across as someone who doesn't really care uh, what a persecution and martyrdom he gets. He, he, for whatever reason, whether he deserves it or not, I, I'm not judging that. I, I can't judge that. What do we know? But we do see a person, it's very rare in life to see someone who appears at least to be so sold out away from his uh, desire to be glorified Quay himself, but sees is so completely identified with a kind of a mission, so completely identified with a, a cause that it's as if he doesn't really care if he dies tomorrow. He reminds me of the portrayal of uh, John the Baptist by Charlton Heston in the original greatest story ever told. Uh, John the Baptist seems to be someone who really actually didn't care about his own life. He, he didn't care uh, if he were driven through... He saw his being driven through the dirt and through the mire as a sort of like something that came with the territory. And he was not surprised when he was utterly and completely, um, when he was killed. Uh, and he was a very tough customer. There was no humor, uh, no charm in human terms. I can see why upper middle class people in Alabama just must just are just it just is just so painful for them because they're afraid that when they go up to New York at Christmas time or whenever they go on special trips, they're going to be regarded as soon as it comes out where they're from as rubes. Uh, they're going to be associated, guilt by association with Roy Moore. And no wonder they would just want to get as far away as they possibly could from any taint of this rube as he's regarded. A here where I'm recording this in Fairfield County, Connecticut. But um, when you watch more himself, there is this odd uh, sort of, uh, what do you want to call it? Uh, it's sort of like a surprise or what is it? It's, a, it's a, an, a third factor. It's something that you can't quite pin down. It's a little bit like Tr Donald Trump in the election, but even more so. There's sort of like a there's an element here, a wild card element, and it's sort of associated with the fact that this man, I don't think, honestly really cares about his reputation. Um, he, is, he is something about whatever is going on with him has laid to rest something that most of us feel very deeply, which is shame and embarrassment and humiliation and reputation. I mean, the last thing one would ever want to have put out. Let's say I wrote a letter when I was 17 or 18 or 19 uh, that was very unbecoming to a person involved in some sort of uh, supposed relationship. Let's, wrote, let's say she wrote me some very, very distressing uh, communication. Let's say I uh, found myself uh, in a situation that was highly distressing and really wrong and, and terrible, about which I might feel to this day. But, you know, um, it, it's as if it was the last thing I would want would be to be confronted with my own, you know, um, conflicted humanity. Um, and yet this man doesn't seem to be bothered that much by it. So whatever it is, uh, I guess I wish I had what he had, even though I don't want to be him. Believe me, I don't want to be accused of the thing he's been accused of. But I, I might wish at some point in my life to have a little bit less concern about my reputation, quote, whatever that is. And it didn't matter as it turned out anyway. I'd like to be sort of a little bit sheltered uh, from things. And I don't think for some reason he's 
fearful of that anymore, and I don't understand it, except it has something to do with what it means to be selfless, and that at least I take away, and it's something I want very much. Now, Merry Christmas, Happy Thanksgiving, and I'll get back to this as soon as I'm settled in my new home somewhere else, uh, but it's all part of our annual move, and we love you so much, and I love you, and I love doing these, and I hope it's some modest help and encouragement. God bless you with all my heart. Drops falling down a mountainside Many times I've been here Many times I've cried We used to be so happy When we were in love High on a mountain of love Night after night I've been standing here alone Weeping my heart out to cold red dawn Praying that you're lonely And you come here too just by chance that I get a glimpse of you Trying hard to find you somewhere love High on a mountain of love A mountain of love, a mountain of love You should be ashamed We used to be a mountain of love But you just changed your name Way down below there's a half a million people Church with a big cross steeple. Inside a church, there's an altar filled with flowers. Wedding bells are ringing, and they should have been ours. That's why I'm so lonely. My dreams gone above, high on a mountain of love. Oh, oh, oh. 